So anybody want to wager a guess how many bone-in chicken wings are expected to be eaten today? Three what, Peter? Three million? Just three. Spoken by a man who prefers not to eat chicken wings, apparently. Uh, I saw a USA Today headline, and they said this. They are expecting 1.4 billion bone-in chicken wings to be eaten today. Um, So there you have it. Uh, There you have it. And in case you were also wondering, Paxatani Phil did not see his shadow, which means that we can expect, according to Phil, an early spring. And the theological reaction for that is, woohoo! <laughs> uh, and I saw something else that was uh, interesting. Of course, uh, most of us um, watch the Super Bowl uh, for the commercials, and a few watch, they see a game breakout, and every once in a while your favorite team is on there, or a local boy, as is today. I understand there's also a player on the 49ers who is a Uh, from East Texas, Um, but I'll let you work all of that out. At any rate, I did see an early preview of one of the commercials that will be seen during the game, and they've already aired it because it does have something to do with Groundhog Day. It is a Jeep commercial for their Rubicon uh, Wrangler, and um, it is great uh, because it is a remake of Groundhog Day, the movie, complete with Bill Murray aged still reliving Groundhog Day every day. Uh, Ned Ryerland is in there, of course. The mayor is in there. And, of course, the groundhog, uh, Phil, is in there. And uh, it is, it is um, I'm just saying that it's just a little bit of, uh, of greatness there. And, of course, my favorite part is that Sonny and Cher's I Got You Babe comes on about ten times. So there you go. <clears throat> In addition to Groundhog Day and Super Bowl Sunday, today begins a new sermon series that will take us through February and March. And I've entitled it First Century Conviction for a 2020 Church. As we consider our 2020 vision beginning this year, I wanted us to focus on the book of Acts and look at how the church did that in the first few decades of its existence. It won't be a book by book, or it won't be a chapter by chapter, certainly not a verse by verse study. But over the next two months, we'll look at the book of Acts and the first few decades of the church as Luke describes it. Each week, we'll challenge ourselves to have that same conviction in 2020. Now, one of the most uh, interesting statements that I have made before, and I have made that here as well, uh, is this one. I don't believe that we are the first century church. I look at the calendar and I just can't work that out. (laughs) But I do believe that we are the 21st century church. And this year, starting a new decade, we are the 2020 church. But we are to have the same first century conviction follow the same scripture, rely on the same Holy Spirit, but in 2020. And so that's why we're dressed the way we are and not like Paul the Apostle dressed, and we're sitting where we are, in the comfort where we are, at the time where we are, and all of those things. Those are indications not from scripture, 
Scripture doesn't really care about all of those things. But what it does care about is that we hold on to this teaching that is found in this word. That is part of the conviction that the first century church had. And so this month and next month, I want us to look at first century conviction for a 2020 church. And if you think a good place to start is Acts 2, you would be wrong. Acts 2 is one of our favorite chapters, right? And, and rightly so. It's the beginning of the church. It's the day of Pentecost. It's when the Holy Spirit was given in an extraordinary, miraculous way. One of only two times in Scripture that it happened like that. Once in Acts chapter 2, once in Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and his family were brought into the church, were baptized into Christ, even though they were Gentiles and not Jews. God did that extraordinary gift of giving the Holy Spirit to them in the words of Peter and the others who were there, just as he had given to us at the beginning. And so it was an extraordinary thing because there was an extraordinary need. That was something different. That was something that was different for the first time in 2,000 years since the day of Abraham. That different. And so God used that gift of the Holy Spirit to help everyone see that this was from God, that this was from the Lord. And they still, as you know, had a hard time with it over the next few decades as the New Testament books were written. But in Acts chapter 2, God gives that Holy Spirit in a very extraordinary way to the apostles and they begin to preach for the very first time in the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And what is their message? Just as Grant shared around the table from John 3.16, God gave his one and only son. Jesus was the Messiah. You killed him, Peter says and the other apostles, but God raised him from the dead and now he has commanded everyone to repent and to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you too will receive the Holy Spirit into your heart and into your life. It was a great message, and 3,000 people were added on that first day. So that is a wonderful chapter. It just doesn't start the book. It's chapter 2. And you say, well, Bill, I don't know of anything that happened in Acts chapter 1. Well, some things did happen. And I believe that some things happened in chapter 1 that were essential to what happened not only in chapter 2 but in the chapters that followed. You see, the first century disciples were a people of prayer. And that's the first conviction that I want us to focus on as we look at that first century church and try to apply it to us as a 2020 church. The early disciples, the first disciples were a people of prayer. And we remember that Luke has finished volume one, the gospel of Luke. And so now he begins volume two, what we call the book of Acts. And he begins to speak about the things that have happened. And then in verse four, he says this, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, Jesus gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And so just as he does at the end of Luke, he does in Acts chapter 1, and he tells them to wait. 
in Luke 24, wait until that time when the Spirit is given and remission and forgiveness and repentance will be preached in the name of Jesus Christ for the first time in Jerusalem. Wait there. But what were they doing during that time? They were praying. That's what they were doing. They were praying. They didn't just run off and try to accomplish the will of Jesus themselves. They were waiting. And they were praying. Acts chapter 1 verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem after Jesus' ascension into heaven from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, along with the others, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with Jesus' brothers. And verse 15 tells us there were 120 at that time that were gathering together constantly in prayer. We know from Acts chapter 2 and the chapters that follow that at the end of Acts chapter 2, they were meeting every day for a while. By Acts chapter 20, it says in verse 7 that they met on the first day of the week to do exactly what we just did a few moments ago, and that was break bread and remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus And remember his words to love others as I have loved you and to serve them the way I have served you. The first century disciples were a people of prayer and that started in Acts chapter 1. So let's share a few things about prayer and why it was so important for the first century disciples and why it should be such an important conviction for us in the 2020 church. First of all, a little take on a different, uh, a different take on a familiar passage. Prayer without action is dead. You've heard that stated differently in James chapter 2. Faith without works or deeds is dead. But I believe that prayer without action is dead. How do you know that, Bill? The rest of the book of Acts is how I know that. Starting in Acts chapter 2 all the way through chapter 28 and beyond, they were active in their faith. Yes, they prayed, but they didn't stop there. They continued to do what Jesus had called on them to do and were led by the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded of the criticism that we have sometimes from those who do not share our faith. When something bad happens or something difficult or Uh, something where, uh, like when Kobe Bryant and his daughter were killed and the others in that helicopter crash, there were many who would say, our thoughts and our prayers are with you and all of those who have lost a loved one. And I think that's a good thing to say. I think that's the right thing to say. But it's also right to follow up on that, to actually think about them, to actually pray for them. And perhaps if you have the opportunity to actually do something to help. I think the idea of thoughts and prayers is one that has significance because we know what that means. 
we feel very confident and, and appreciate so much the strength and the power that come from knowing that people are praying for you. Joyce and I have experienced that firsthand. Almost everyone in this room, I'm sure, has experienced that firsthand. When you're going through something, you feel people's prayers. And that's a very powerful thing. But prayer without action is dead. It can't stop there. Sometimes that may be all we can do, but not every time. And I would even venture, maybe not even most times. What can we do to help? What can we do to bring God's will about? The Lord's prayer says, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are we doing to help make that happen? Starting with my own life and my own obedience. In John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. The apostles, including the one Judas Iscariot who would betray him, he hadn't left yet. And Jesus knew full well that he was what he was about to do. And yet Jesus took off his clothes and went foot by foot of dirty, filthy apostles and washed their feet, knowing that they would all desert him in just a few hours. And then as he finished... He put his clothes back on and he looked at them and he said, you see what I've done for you? Do you remember that the servant is not greater than the master? And yet I have washed your feet. And so now I want you to do that, not for me, for one another. Jesus says, now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. In 1 John 3, John writes and says, let us... Let us have a faith and a life that is not just with words and speech, but with action and in truth. Prayer without action is dead. What do they call the name of this book anyway? The book of Acts. And that's not spelled (laughs) A-X. I had someone tell me one time, you know, you talk a lot about love in your church, but I don't get it because I hear you talking about an Acts in 238s all the time. Well, Acts 2.38 is a great passage. It's a great passage, but it's a great book. And it's not called the book of Acts for nothing. It is called the book of Acts because that's what happens all the way through it. People act in faith and they act on their faith. And that begins with prayer. Prayer without action is dead. Secondly, prayer or action without prayer Is my will, not God's. Prayer without action is dead, but what about action without prayer? Well, that's my will, what I want, rather than God's. Because prayer is that event where I go to God and I seek His will, and I seek His blessing, and I seek His direction. In the first chapter of Acts, a little bit later on, Peter amazingly stands up in front of everybody which is just an amazing act of faith on his part after what he had done, denying Jesus three times out of fear. But Jesus had encouraged him and had told him, I need you to be there for my people. Even when you come back, I want you to be there for them. I want you to feed my sheep, John 21 says. And so Peter stands up and he talks about Judas Iscariot and his betrayal. And he says, you know, We should have known that was talked about in the Old Testament. And now someone needs to take his place. We need to choose somebody to take his place. 
And how did they do that? They prayed about it. That's what they did. Acts 1, beginning in verse 24. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two men that they had settled on you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. They needed someone who had been with them from the beginning, and they needed someone who had seen the resurrected Lord. And they found these two men, and one of them was Matthias. And before they decided between the two, they prayed, God, give us the direction that we need. And I realize that we're not going to throw dice or cast lots or pick a number or something like that. But I do believe very strongly that God will answer that prayer still. He will answer that prayer when we genuinely seek him and his will in the decisions that we make. I believe that he will guide us, and I believe that we will have the opportunity to know his will, to discern that will, and to act on that will. And James chapter 4 is that familiar passage of scripture that talks about people who make plans without considering God at all. And so James, the brother of the Lord, says, now let me talk to you people who just say, well, I'm going to go there to that town. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to sell this. I'm going to buy this without ever considering God and his will. And he said, that's not right. You shouldn't do it that way. Instead, you should say what? If it's your will. I'll do this if it's your will, if it's according to the will. And it's more than just the words. You don't have to say the words, but you have to act that way. And I think sometimes it's good to say the words and maybe say them in a prayer. Maybe say them in a prayer that says something like, God, is this your will? Help me to know. And especially those things that are of great importance in our lives. It's good for us to pray that prayer. It's good for us to seek God's will and not just act on my own. And there are several scripture passages on your outline from the Gospels that talk about the prayers of the Lord while he was here in this life. In Matthew 4, he fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights and then was tempted and then began his ministry. In Luke 6, before he chose the 12 apostles, he spent all night praying about it. He spent the night in prayer. And then according to Luke 6, he chose the 12 apostles. In Luke 11, the disciples saw him praying, and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And of course, the most familiar one of all in Mark 14, the Garden of Gethsemane. As he prayed, guess what? Not my will, but yours be done. You've heard me say before, I think the single most powerful, powerful statement from the Bible about why we should pray is not any passage that commands us to pray, although those are there. But it's this one simple fact. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. The Son of God prayed. Knowing what he knew, experiencing what he had experienced, the Son of God prayed. And so I'm thinking that if Jesus prayed and Jesus felt the need to seek the will of the Father, Bill probably should as well. Call it a hunch, but I'm pretty sure it's the truth. Jesus 
prayed. Prayer without action is dead, but action without prayer is my will, not God's. And so thirdly this morning, action without prayer relies on my power, not God's. And I love the prayers in the book of Acts, and one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible is seen Uh, in this reading in Acts chapter 4. You see, in Acts chapter 1, they pray, and in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes, and, and repentance and remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ by responding in faith and being baptized in His name and by His authority. All of that happens in Acts chapter 2, and that's a great thing. But in Acts chapter 3, we learn right away that the Jewish leaders aren't any happier about the apostles doing this than they were about Jesus doing it. And they crucified Him. And so the persecution, the actual physical persecution begins later, but the threats begin right now. And in Acts chapters 3 and 4, they arrest the the apostles, they threaten them, they tell them to not speak anymore in this name. They respond in faith and say, we've got to. We can't not speak in his name. You do what you have to do, but we're going to continue to preach Jesus. And then they are released after further threats. And where do they go? They go back and rejoin the disciples who are meeting there in Jerusalem. And what are they doing? They're praying. And what do they do when the apostles come back? They pray. On their release, Acts 4, verse 23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, verse 24, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And I love this prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. I love the way it starts. It starts with praise. It starts by by telling each other in this prayer, we, we understand God is on the throne. <laughs> and we understand that nations are going to come and are going to threaten him and, and he is unswayed by it. It's always been that way from the time of the psalmist to now. And so he acknowledges the threat. One of the things about prayer is that prayer is not make-believe. Prayer is not wishful thinking. Prayer does not pretend that things are not serious when things are serious. That's why we pray. Because we need God's help and we seek his help. And so faithful biblical prayer acknowledges the situation. And that's what they do beginning in verse 27. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They can do this. They can come through on their threats. We've already seen it with Jesus. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Maybe they prayed for protection and safety. I don't think this is every word of the prayer, but it's interesting that that's not what the Holy Spirit has Luke record. They don't pray 
for God to keep them safe in Acts 4. They pray that whatever happens, you give us the courage and the ability to continue to speak boldly. Whether the consequences are few or many, whether they're minor or major, whether things work out well for us in this life or they don't. Give us the courage to do what's right. Give us the courage to speak the truth in love. As Paul would later say in Ephesians 4, give us the courage to speak boldly. Continue to do your work in the name of your son, Jesus. And then verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what they did? They spoke the word of God boldly. Action without prayer relies on my power, not God's, but action with prayer relies on the power of God. And so we turn forward a few chapters to Acts chapter 12. And in Acts chapter 12, it's King Herod who is offering the threats. And he's not just offering the threats, he's coming through on them. Because he has James, the brother of John, arrested. And then he has him killed. God doesn't come and save him any more than God came and saved his own son from the cross. And because he saw that all the Jewish leaders loved it so much, he arrested Simon Peter as well. And guess what the church is doing through this whole time? They are praying. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church, verse 5, was earnestly praying to God for him. And then God answered their prayers for James with a no, but he answers their prayer for Peter with a yes. And so we trust in the wisdom and the will of God. But he sends his angel and Peter is released and he's so concerned about being in jail that he's asleep. <laughs> and the angel kind of has to poke him to wake him up. Kind of like me when I'm in my recliner anytime after nine, right, Joyce? The angel wakes him up and the doors are open and Peter realizes, oh, this isn't just a vision. This is really happening. And so he leaves and he goes and he finds the disciples who are likely meeting in the home of of uh, John Mark's mother. That's probably where the church at Jerusalem, at least part of it, met. And so there they were. He knew where they were. They were praying. They were praying. Verse 12 of Acts 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. But it's interesting to see from here. <laughs> Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And I love this girl. This girl is one of my favorite Bible characters and we don't know anything about her other than this story, but it is a great one. A servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it. <laughs> I love that so much. And exclaimed, Peter is at the door. And can't you just see their looks? They're looking around and they're saying, where is he? <gasps> I didn't let him in. Maybe she was thinking, well, he got out of jail somehow. Surely he can get in the, well, I don't know. Verse 15, you're out of your mind, they told her, when she kept insisting that it 
was sowed, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. (laughs) Somebody let me in before I get arrested again, would you? See, here's the thing. They were praying. And yet, when God brought about what they were praying for, they were so surprised they had trouble believing it. That's the greatness of our God. We'll talk about it more in our devotional after lunch, but he takes our little faith and he expands it and he helps us and he responds. And so they go to the door and they let Peter in and Peter motioned verse 17 with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And then he says, tell James, the half-brother of Jesus, one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem from the start, and the other brothers and sisters about this. And then he left. And we think of that great incident in the life of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. He had this thorn in the flesh. Whatever that was, it was something he felt like was inhibiting his effectiveness as as a leader for God. And he prayed, he says three times, for God to take it away. And God answered that prayer, and he told him, no. And here's what he said. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness, not strength. The power of God is made perfect in our weakness, and prayer helps us to tie into that power of God. What a mighty God we serve. And so with Paul, we say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because I pray and my God is great. Well, as we close this morning, prayer is an acknowledgement that we rely upon God, not ourselves. That's what prayer means. It's a confession. It's a confession that looks to God and says, God, I don't got this, but you got this and I'm going to be okay with it. However you work it out, I'm going to rely on you and not on myself. And it's all going to be good, however it goes. On Sunday evening, February 16th, in just two weeks, we're going to have a special song and prayer devotional about our 2020 vision and ask God's blessing and power as we seek to realize it this year. The first century church was a church of conviction and it started with their prayer life. They relied on God to such an extent that the book of Acts, I think, could also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit and the church. (laughs) Because the church leaders aren't the main characters. It's the Holy Spirit acting through people such as Stephen and Peter and Paul and all the others. Would that be said of us? Do we have such a reliance upon God that we clearly see the Holy Spirit working within us? Do you see him working within you? To realize God's 2020 vision, we must be a people of prayer. We must be individuals of prayer, and that prayer must lead to action. Are you ready this morning to let the Lord take control of your life? Prayer will be a part of that. And if we can help as well, come as we stand and sing our song together.